Bibles. If you're using the church Bible, that's page 1014. We're calling this series A Living Hope uh, because that's what Peter, uh, so, so Peter is writing to Christians uh, who are being persecuted for their faith. And we're going to talk more about that as we go through the series, what that looks like. Uh, but what he does as he writes to encourage them is he anchors their hope in the living Jesus, in the fact that, that not only has their Savior bled and died, but he has also risen again. And that changes everything about the way in which those who believe in Jesus live. Um, so we're going we're gonna to start that series today. This would also be a good time. If you have not yet gotten plugged into a Wednesday night growth group, the, the best way to get the most out of Grace Fellowship uh, is not simply to be here on Sunday morning, though that is great, but we gather in groups. The, the best way to get the most out of the life of our church is to get connected with other people in our church. Uh, and so that's the purpose, one of the main avenues, the ways that we do that is through our, our growth groups where we gather in homes uh, and we take the, the passage that we looked at on Sunday uh, and we talk more about it. We try to unpack it a little bit more and apply it more to our lives because I obviously don't have the opportunity to do all of that, right? There's over 100 people in this room, so trying to connect this passage with every single person in here would be impossible, but... We have more of an opportunity to do that in our growth group. So as we get started in a new series, this is a great time to get started in a growth group. Uh, we, we eat together, uh, we pray together, and then we study the Bible together. And so the information for those groups is actually out on the um, resource table in our gathering area. Um, with one change, the Vincent growth group will be meeting at the McKinnon home uh, for the time being. Uh, and we sent out that address, but if you are interested in going to that growth group, uh, see me after the worship service, and I can, give you, uh, I can give you that address. So there's one change there. But I encourage you to get plugged in. Parents, if you have children, uh, we have activities and groups for them up here, so you can drop your kids off uh, in the backyard. Uh, you can drop youth off over in the, our, our office building to, uh, next door to here. We call it Salter Hall. Um, but it's just an opportunity for us to grow in community around the Word of God. So, that said, let's focus our attention on 1 Peter. We're just going to look at the first two verses this morning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Thus far the reading of God's word, all flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to bless its reading and hearing and preaching. Father, would you open up again your word to us? Would you connect it to our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you transform us and renew us uh, as we listen to what Peter has to say to us and really what you have to say to us through Peter this morning? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, some of you are already familiar with this study, I sh- uh, with this story. I shared it a few weeks ago in our um, uh, our core class that meets before worship. Uh, but recently, Ryan Burge, who is a pastor and a social scientist, he teaches sociology at uh, Eastern Illinois University. Uh, he wrote a book called The Nuns, N-O-N-E-S, which is about people who identify as non-religious. He did an interview with the Gospel Coalition, uh, and he made some interesting remarks. One that caught my ear, Bird says this, We always used to assume in religion and politics that religion was first and everything else was second. So you looked at politics through a religious lens. In the last five years or so, we're starting to see that the political lens is the first lens in our eye. Our perspective is framed and shaped deeply by our politics. We're looking at our religion from a political view, not looking at politics from a theological worldview. In other words, uh, what Burge is asserting, what he says he's seeing in the population at large is that used to the assumption was that what you believed about God was the foundation on which you built the house of the rest of your life. Now he's saying what it appears to be happening is that people, the identity on which people are grounding their lives is their political identity, um, not and, and that then influences their theological identity, right? So, so politics is shaping religion, your religious views, rather than your religious views shaping your politics. Uh, and one of the examples that he gives of that, he cites a, a survey done recently uh, called the CCES. So they've been doing it since 2006, just measuring uh, voting patterns and identity, etc. And one of the things that he notices... One of the things that you're seeing an uptick in are people who are identifying as non-Christian and evangelical. Now, if you're not familiar with that word evangelical, what it used to mean was basically, right, it comes from, our, uh, from the Greek word that means gospel. The word is evangel. It means good news. And so an evangelical was someone who believed in the authority of Scripture, that Jesus was the fully divine and fully human Son of God, that he was the only Savior of sinners, right? Those, were, those, are, those are core Christian beliefs that an evangelical would hold to. But he says what we're beginning to see are people who are not Christian in any shape, form, or fashion. They don't adhere to Christianity, but they're identifying as evangelical. In fact, one, one subset of that group, uh, and it's a, it's a small percentage, but he says what you have is a large number of Muslims, uh, devout Muslims, like Muslims who go to mosque on a weekly basis who are identifying as evangelical. Uh, and from that, from, from looking at the data, uh, Burge draws two conclusions. One, uh, the word evangelical, its meaning has changed. And so, uh, so when they answer, like the question on the survey is simply, you know, you, you identify your religious affiliation, et cetera, who you voted for, all that. And then they ask the question, do you identify as born again or evangelical, yes or no? And so what Bird says the data is showing is that an increasing number of Muslims are checking yes. And he draws two conclusions. One of them is that 
to be born again means to be simply religiously devout. Right? So, so it means that you hold your, your faith, whatever faith that is, you hold it with intensity. Right? That's, that's the new, that, that could be one explanation of why a Muslim would check the evangelical box. But he also notices another trend that uh, the people who identify in that way also overwhelmingly vote Republican. And so he's saying what looks like is happening is the, is the label evangelical is shifting from describing a certain uh, group of Christian viewpoints, like to Christian theology, to an ardent religious person who votes conservatively, who votes Republican. Right? Uh, that's an identity crisis where, where you have people who would, who would, never, who would never say uh, it, that it requires the Holy Spirit to be born again. They would not hold to that core Christian belief, but they're identifying as evangelical or born again because they voted Republican. I call that an identity crisis, right? We don't know, we don't know who we are. And because we don't know who we are, we don't know how to live. We don't know how... To act. And that's what Peter uh, is writing to address, particularly in these opening verses. Right? Look at how Peter identifies these people. He calls them, in verse 1, elect exiles, uh, chosen foreigners. Now, if you really think about it, those two words don't, they don't, they shouldn't make sense together. These people are chosen by God. They're elect. That means they are inside of God's love and favor. God has placed his love upon them. And yet he also says they are foreigners. They're exiles. They are outsiders in relation to the world around them. In other words, to be a Christian is to have this strange dual identity. You are an inside outsider. You, are, you belong to God, but because you belong to God, you no longer belong to the world around you. And that creates tension, doesn't it? That's what the people in, uh, that Peter is writing to are facing. They've come to believe in Jesus from all manner of social and economic and religious backgrounds. They've placed their faith in Christ. And what that's done is it has created distance alienation. They are now being ostracized and excluded and persecuted by their family, friends, and neighbors. Now that seems maybe like a strange experience to those of us in the West because that's not our, maybe we, we run up against some things here and there, but by and large, our practice of Christianity is shared usually by those around us. That's changing a little bit. It's actually changing a lot, even in a place like Clanton. Uh, but still, nobody has kicked you out of the house or uh, burned your house down or taken your fields because you name the name of Jesus. Well, that happens in other parts of the world. People get thrown in prison. Uh, they even get executed. That hasn't happened here. Uh, so how does First Peter then speak to us? That was the experience of these believers in the first century. That's the experience of other believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Um, but I still think Peter has some relevance to us, and it's on this question of identity. 
Here's, here's the main thought for today. You have to know who you are if you want to know how to live. You have to understand your identity, who you are, if you want to understand how to live. The question is still the same for the first century, for believers in uh, India or China or Iran, and for us. Uh, by, by nature of belonging to Jesus, we live in a, we, we live in a hostile culture. That the world around us can often be hostile to what we believe. We may experience that hostility in different ways, uh, but we are, it, we, our identity creates attention. Here's what uh, Scott McKnight said. He's a, a writer on First Peter. He says, Peter intends his readers to understand who they are before God so that they can be who they are in society. I'll say that again. It's crucially important. Peter wants his readers to understand who they are before God so that they can be who they are in society. Okay? And so I want to look this morning at the two, uh, the key components of this identity. First, what it means to live as outsiders, uh, and then what it means to live as insiders. First is outsiders. Um, Peter, this, so this letter comes from Peter. He calls himself an apostle. That word means that he is one of the original witnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection. He is one of uh, several men on whom the foundation of the early church was built. Uh, you've heard other, you see other voices in the New Testament, men like Paul. You may know uh, James and John and Andrew. Uh, the original 11 minus, excuse me, the original 12 minus Judas who walked with Jesus, they were all called apostles. That word means to be sent out, sent ones. And so Peter identifies himself as a messenger of Jesus. He, he bears the authority of Jesus uh, to speak to these people. And he calls them elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, you and I aren't familiar with those places, but if you look on a map, this is, this is northern Turkey. That's, these, that's where these believers are scattered. So these were Roman-controlled uh, Roman areas, but it was a very diverse area with a diverse group of, of languages. It was mostly rural. Okay, so you have people from all manner of backgrounds who are a part of this group. This is where they belong. These are their homes. And so we should also point out that they are mostly Gentile. That means these are not Jewish people. They are those uh, who are outside of the Jewish faith. And yet Peter calls them, he, in fact, he uses Jewish language to describe them. He says that they are elect exiles of the dispersion. What in the world is that? The dispersion is a technical term, okay? And it refers in history to the group of people who used to live in what we call modern-day Israel, the Jews, uh, when they were scattered, when they were exiled from the land in 587 B.C., uh, everyone who was scattered to the nations, that, was called, that, that word to disperse means to scatter. All of those people, if they never came back, were called the dispersion. Okay? But it's clear from reading Peter's letter, if you keep reading in it, you see that 
he's not talking to Jewish people. The descriptions that he's using, he's referring to Gentiles. So he's taking a Jewish label, referring to the scattering of God's people through the nations, and he's now applying it to non-Jews, to Gentiles. He's, he's, saying, he's, he's saying this, once you were outside of God's promises, you were outside of God's people, but now you were brought in. You can identify as part of God's people. You are part of the dispersion, the people of God scattered through the nations. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2. He says, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Right, so... so in Jesus, now Gentiles can be called the people of God. They are part of uh, Israel, so to speak. But that's created some problems for them. Uh, now that they are identified as God's people, uh, they have become, as Peter says, they have, they have become exiles, uh, strangers, foreigners. They don't belong where they used to belong. Uh, their homes are not their homes anymore. We have a complex relationship with immigrants here in the United States. Our country is both founded on immigration, and yet also that's one of the political hot-button issues. Um, those of us, even though our family roots lie elsewhere in the world, uh, if we've been in America for several generations, uh, we might have a very uh, suspicious view of those who immigrate to America, right? Um, you'll hear people say things like, well, they should learn to speak American, you know. What Peter is saying is, you're a foreigner. If you're in Christ, you're the foreigner. You're the one with the green card. You're the one who doesn't belong here. That's what he's saying. He's saying your identification in Christ has put you outside of the norm. Uh, you, the, the church, as a community of believers, this, by the way, is why the community of believers is so important. The, the church is not an organization that meets in a building. It is a, it is a community of believers rallied around Jesus and his word. And he said, what he's saying is that the, the, the church is an embassy on foreign soil, Right? That, that the group, that the believers, when they, when they come to name the name of Jesus, they no longer belong to their homeland. They now belong to Jesus first and foremost. They are at odds with the world around them. When we, um, it's, it's, a, it's a curious thing when you, go, when you go to an embassy in a foreign country. Um, when we were, we, we spent a summer in China back in 2008 and we had to go visit the American embassy in Beijing. Uh, and you may not know this, but when, you, uh, when we walked through the gates of the embassy, we actually left Chinese soil and set foot on American soil. Now, geographically, we didn't go anywhere, right? We weren't, you know, we weren't magically transported back to the United States of America, but we were in an American embassy, and in that embassy, that is American soil. American law rules and reigns there. Well, that's the church in the world today. Wherever she gathers, she is an embassy on foreign soil. She is a representative of the kingdom of God on foreign soil. She's like a little circle inside of a big circle. 
And that means that her values, what she believes, the rule and reign of Jesus, can bring her into conflict, dissonance, tension with the world around her. Um, They are outsiders. They are strangers in a strange land. They are elect exiles, exiles, foreigners. So every Christian lives as an outsider, but every Christian also lives as an insider. And that's the first word. Yes, we're foreigners, but we're also, if you're in Christ, you're also elect, chosen. That means you are loved by God from before the foundation of the world. So you are inside the love and favor of God. Look at how he describes this in verse 2. They are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 1, that before time began, God foreknew. He talks about it in Romans 8. He foreknew and he predestined. He chose those who would come to him. So, loved by God and chosen by God before the foundation of the world. That's the Father's plan. In the sanctification of the Spirit, in the holiness of the Spirit. So, God's plan that he began from before the foundation of the world was to bring a people to himself and set them apart and make them like him. That's what the word sanctification means, to be set apart, to be made like God. And who is the agent of that? It's the Holy Spirit. That's who he mentions here. But what's the goal? Why did God foreknow? Why does he sanctify? Peter tells us, for obedience and sprinkling in the blood of Jesus Christ. For obedience and sprinkling. That's kind of weird. What's he talking about? Well, Peter is referencing an event in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 24. And here's what happens if you go back and you read that chapter today. Uh, so God has given the Ten Commandments. He's given the people his law. And now that God has spoken... Then the invitation is for the people to respond and say, will they keep the law or not? And the people say, we will do everything that God has commanded. They say it more than once. We will do everything that God has commanded. And so that's what we call a covenant agreement. God has said, here's what you are to do. The people have said, here is how we will respond. Right? So both sides have made promises and then those promises are ratified. Just like they would be at a legal proceeding or at a, at a marriage. They are ratified. And the way that they're ratified in Exodus 24 is uh, sacrifices are brought to Moses. Blood is spilled. And he takes that blood and he sprinkles it on the people. It's a sign of their commitment to God and God's commitment to them. Right? That, so he sprinkles them for their obedience. They are, they are signified as being cleansed to obey God. Now, if you know the story of the Old Testament, how does their end of the bargain go? It's not very well. Uh, just to, after, the, after that moment, Moses goes up on the mountain and he begins receiving instructions from God about this worship tent that the people are to build so that God can dwell with his people. Well, while Moses is receiving instructions on how God is going to live with his people, what are the people doing down at the bottom of the mountain? They're 
they're making a false god. They get impatient and they say, all right, well, we need some new gods because we don't know what happened to Moses. Uh, So, Aaron, would you make us a golden calf to lead us on into the promised land? We need a new god. So while God is making plans to live with them, they are already committing adultery. They are already saying, oh, we're out. We've had enough of that already. So the same people who said, we will do everything that God has commanded, are now doing the very opposite. So they break the covenant. Almost, I mean, the blood's probably not even dry yet, and they're breaking the covenant. Well, Peter references that moment, but here he says they are being sprinkled for obedience to Jesus Christ, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with Jesus' own blood. You see, hundreds of years after Israel broke the covenant at Mount Sinai and then repeated to break the covenant, God promised uh, through the prophet Ezekiel to come again himself and to give them a new heart, to change the people from the inside out. And he said, at that time, I will sprinkle you with clean water. I will give you a new heart so that you will walk with me, so that you will obey my commandments. You broke my old covenant. I'm going to make a new one, and here's what I'm going to do in it. And now, hundreds of years after Ezekiel, Peter is saying that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to shed his own blood so that we could be sprinkled clean, washed clean, and learn to live in obedience to him. So we are now insiders, not because we have the right cultural identity, not because we have the right credentials or ethnic pedigree. We are insiders sheerly by the grace of God through the blood of the Lord Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. Do you notice that all three persons of the Trinity were mentioned there? The foreknowledge of God the Father through the holiness of, by the holiness of the Spirit uh, through obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. God has done all the work so that his people can be his. So, what does that mean for us as we walk through Peter's letter? What I want to say, just kind of frame it up this morning, is this. If you are in Christ, know who you are. You are loved by God. You are filled with the Spirit. And you have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus for continual obedience. God, by his grace, has done everything necessary so that you will belong to him. Let that identity drive the way that you live. You have a new identity. And that means that, y'all, if you're in Christ, that means you won't always fit in. You're going to miss out. There are going to be things that you wish maybe you could have done and you can't do. That's going to create dissonance between you and your family members and your neighbors and your coworkers. But that identity means we should live accordingly. That identity has implications for how we live. And so let's set as the foundational identity not our family not our political affiliation, but Jesus. Right? What God has done for us in Christ is our foundational identity. And we build the house on every, everything else we do, we build the house on that foundational identity. 
So the word, as Peter begins, is remember whose you are. Remember who you belong to and live your life accordingly. And we'll talk about what that looks like as we continue through 1 Peter. Let's pray. God of all grace, we thank you for this word, even as we just really get started. As, we, as you begin to pique our interest, Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts, that you would point us in the right direction about what it means to be your people and to belong to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Fred is about to lead our time of prayer, but before he does, I wanted to give you a quick update on our uh, Family in Ukraine, uh, our mission, mission partners, Kirk and Anna Norris, um, they have gotten a place to live in Krakow, Poland. Uh, so they were living in a hotel. They have now gotten into an apartment that they are moving into today, or I guess what was today over there. Uh, and the plan now is to basically do refugee relief. And so uh, Kirk, along with other members of the team, will be taking caravans of supplies back to Lviv, across the border, back into Lviv, uh, and then bringing refugees out of Lviv back